Let us begin our sermon with prayer. O God, who justifies the ungodly and who does not desire the death of the sinner, we humbly ask you in your great majesty that you would graciously assist us with your heavenly aid and forevermore shield us with your protection so that we may grow in trust in your mercy through the words of today's sermon and that we may learn to resist temptations by the power of Christ our Lord so that we may never be separated from you by any temptation and that through Christ we serve you without ceasing. Amen. Our text for our sermon is Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Now the serpent was more clever than any wild animal which the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Has God really said, You shall not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees of the garden, but not from the fruit of the tree that's in the middle of the garden. God has said, You shall not eat from it. You shall not touch it or else you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You certainly will not die. In fact, God knows that the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was appealing to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took some of its fruit and ate. She gave some also to her husband who was with her and he ate it. The eyes of both of them were opened and they realized that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for their waists. This is the word of our Lord. There had been a rebellion. If we understand Revelation properly, one third of the angels led by the devil tried to overpower God. The devil himself wanting to be God. He failed. You can't beat God. Now he had one thing to do. All of creation over six days culminated in the creation of the man. And then so that the man would appreciate the great gift, the last thing God made is the woman. If all of creation is meant to be man's abode, the devil sets out to destroy the holiness, the image of God that Adam and Eve had. And how did he do that? First, he looks at the animals and picks one that at least seems plausible to talk because they know they're the only humans. And then he says those terrible, awful words. Did God really say? I used to hate it when I was a child and people would say, did you really do that? Did you really say that? Even though I'm the one who said it and I still have that happen as an adult, you start scratching your head going, did I hear that right? And notice he talks to Eve. Eve had not been made yet. When God gave Adam that command, Adam passed that command on to Eve. And so he's already lied by disguising himself as a serpent. Now he starts planting the seed of doubt. Did God really say? And brothers and sisters in Christ, as we look at the temptation of of Eve and Adam standing right there doing nothing, talking snake, man. We're going to ask that question. Do you know the devil's lies? Because we clearly see three of his big lies that he whispers in our ear through our sinful nature every day. Let's get right into that first lie. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. He said to the woman, Has God really said, You shall not eat from any tree in the garden? Did you catch what he did? He changed one little word, brothers and sisters in Christ. In English, the way he would have been telling the truth is to say, Has God really said, You shall not eat from a tree in the garden. Just one. Only one was banned from them. They were even allowed to eat from the tree of life because they were not meant to die. Just one, the one that gave knowledge of good and evil. It gave knowledge because they could tell that would be a sin. To do evil would be to eat from that tree. By not eating of it, they knew what good was and they knew what evil was. That's the reason why it existed. 
any. He just changed one word to start tripping Eve up. And if you think that today, thousands of years later, that we're not guilty of buying into the devil's lies of changing one word, stop and take a look at the sins you and I commit every day. Let me give you an example. On the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells us if we're even angry at somebody, if we're harboring a grudge, we are guilty of murder in our heart. We break the commandment, thou shalt not murder. But we change it. We just twist a little word around. But this person deserves it. Throughout pulpits this morning, pastors who I would accuse them of unbelief because they do not believe the word of God is inspired will change that word. They'll remove the word inspired and they will teach God's word as a bunch of cute fables that tell us moral stories. And today those moral stories may be different. God's morality to them has changed. And so God's word becomes like clay they can shape in and of themselves. But you know what? We can change God's word by just taking everything it says literally. What do I mean by that? Yes, the literal portion should be taken literal. But take, for example, the book of Revelation. It begins by telling us it was a vision, a revelation, like watching salvation history being painted before the disciple John's eyes. Guess which book people add their own interpretations to instead of going to the literal portions of Scripture and seeing what that painting, what that muriel of Revelation represents. Or, for example, the Psalms. The Psalms are songs. They're poetry. And if we don't understand them as poetry, we can miss a lot. Now, God's, all of God's word is inspired, but we call it biblicism when we take portions of Scripture that are not meant to be taken literally, and we take them literally. And we start adding false teachings then, like millennialism and post-dispensationalism. Doctrine is drawn from the word of God. But it's really easy, and this happens in every church body throughout history, it's really easy for us to turn around and forget that doctrine is drawn from the Word of God. The Word of God is the standard, and suddenly we run right to our doctrine, and we let that be the Word of God. And then pretty soon we start quoting church fathers or church traditions and making them doctrine, and we've replaced the Word of God. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we don't even mean to. But the devil comes along and all he has to do is change one little word and he has a puppet, our sinful nature. Boom, we are doped right by it. If we were left to our own devices, we will fall. Even Adam at least began as holy. You and I began as unholy. So we're certainly going to fall if they couldn't stand up to it. What are we to do? This is why God has saved us. This is why God took on human flesh. And Jesus, after he was baptized, goes out in the desert and he's tempted by the devil. And one of the lies the devil works on him is recorded in our gospel lesson in Matthew chapter 4, starting at verse 5. Then the devil took him into the holy city. He placed him on the pinnacle of the temple and he said to him, If you are the Son of God, in other words, I don't believe you are, Throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Oh, here's another one of the devil's tricks. He takes the Word of God and pulls it out of its context. A lot of cults do that. They'll focus on one passage and they pull it out of its context. The psalm that the devil is quoting is talking about God providing for us. 
God normally provides for us through natural means. God said He's going to provide for you. Now don't forget, Jesus has been fasting. But brothers and sisters in Christ, He's hungry. Throw yourself down. Make God prove that you're the Son of God. Make Him prove that He Himself is God. That's not the point of that passage. But Jesus, the Word, knows all of the Word. There's one author of the Word, even though He used many men. It's the Holy Spirit who's recording Jesus' Word. And Jesus looks at the whole forest. Then He focuses on the trees of this passage. And He puts it in His context. And Jesus stands up to that changing of the Word. And He said, again, it's written, You shall not test the Lord your God. God provided for Jesus while he was fasting. God provides for you and I. Usually not through miracles, usually through natural means. The psalm assures us that God is there to take care of us and make sure that we're saved. But it's not for us to put God to the test. He gives us faith to trust in him. Did God really say? Do you know what the devil's lies are? One of the big lies is he adds or subtracts to the word of God. And our champion knew the word of God perfectly. He stood up to this temptation and he put the word right back in its context. The devil comes with his second lie to Eve as he continues his God. Did God really say? See if you can figure out what the lie is here. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees of the garden, but not from the fruit of the tree that's in the middle of the garden. God said, you shall not eat from it. You shall not touch it or you will die. Now, when God gave this command to Adam, he didn't say you shall not touch it. Could be that that just isn't recorded. Or it could be that Adam giving this command to his wife said, "Hun, let's be let's just not even touch it. But here's where the devil's lie comes. Tell me if you catch it. The serpent said to the woman. You certainly will not die. Do you get what the ultimate lie is behind that? The devil calls God a liar. God's lying to you. He said you will die, you won't die. Now we know that they spiritually died because they hide from God. And we know that now they'll suffer death. They'll be bandied from the tree of life. And God has to send them a savior. Oh yes, brothers and sisters in Christ. And again, there are many ways in which we as Christians want to call God a liar. It's very hard when we have a loved one who is neither hot nor cold to the word of God. They're indifferent. And they die and we want them to be in heaven. It's very different when we have a loved one who rejects the Lord and we don't want them to be in hell. How often do you hear Christians say, I just can't believe that a loving God would send anyone to hell. Well, guess what? God makes it clear that he does. And to say anything else is to call God a liar. But let's address that. See, God did take on human flesh and he did send a savior. John 3.16 addressed that one. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. How can a loving God send anyone to hell? Because a loving God has offered salvation to everyone in the world. If they find themselves in hell, they have only themselves to blame. They didn't love the word. They didn't have the faith. Another way that the devil calls God a liar. Boy, this happens in a lot of Christian churches. Don't kid yourself. In your baptism, God makes a promise to you. He promises you the Holy Spirit. He promises you that through that Holy Spirit, you're connected to Christ. Christ's death is your death. Christ's resurrection is your resurrection. Christ's blood is poured upon you. God does all the work. God does all the promising in baptism. But we call God a liar. 
We turn around and make baptism our way of saying, Look, Lord, I'm choosing you. And then we lose that wonderful comfort that God has sealed His Holy Spirit in our heart. The greatest way the devil uses our sinful nature to call God a liar is in your salvation. God has said Jesus did all the work. Jesus stood up to all the temptation. Jesus kept all the law. And we say, that's right, but you just got to do this one little thing. You're calling God a liar when you believe the sinful nature. Again, all of us have been guilty of this in one way or the other, and I could go on all day, but let's get to how Jesus stood up to this temptation. Now, Jesus had fasted 40 days. He had not had anything to eat. Lots of times we find out when the Jews talked about fasting, they just fasted from sunrise to sunset. In other words, you can go 12 hours without eating and be okay. But Jesus was truly out in the wilderness and fasting. God, for 40 days, kept Jesus' body alive. Just the miracle of that was clear that God the Father was providing for him. But the devil says, no, God's not going to provide for you. The tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become bread. God's lying to you. He's not going to provide for you. But Jesus answered, it's written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. We can't see spiritual life, but God is our spiritual life. And Jesus stood up to that and he's given you and I spiritual life and he's removed our sins. He washes them away daily. The devil calls God a liar. Jesus says, "Uh uh-uh, God sustains us. So far, we've seen two of the devil's great lies. He lies by adding or subtracting just one word and then he lies by calling God outright a liar. See if you can catch the last lie in his trickery. The devil continues in verse 5. In fact, God knows that the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Did you catch the lie there? See, Adam and Eve actually were like God. They did know good and evil the way God does. Once they ate of that fruit, they knew evil the way the devil does because they'd done evil. God has never done evil. But brothers and sisters in Christ, what's he really saying? God's withholding something wonderful from you. How mean of God! How could God let you go without this? And he whispers that in our ears. Yes, oftentimes we can look at a brother or sister in Christ who they have just as good a skills as we do, but they seem to constantly have the better paying job. And maybe we can get jealous. Lord, why do I have to live with a lower income? And it never dawns on us that maybe God's withholding that for our good. Maybe in our hearts we're too tempted to let money be our God. And by withholding a certain amount of it, He keeps us from forfeiting our salvation. But instead we whine, why are you withholding this from me? We look at other spiritual and natural gifts. Why don't I have those? God has His reasons and they're for our good and the good of others. The Apostle Paul says, Lord, I'm not an effective preacher. I've got this thorn in the flesh. And God says, no, 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 no. My grace is made perfect in your weakness. Oh, health issues come upon us and we look at our neighbor and say, Lord, why do I have to fight cancer? Lord, why do I have to have this problem? You're withholding from me. You're withholding health. Brothers and sisters in Christ, and again, sometimes we will not know until we get to heaven, but I've seen it in my own life where afterwards you say, ah, that turned out to be a blessing. The devil lies to us. 
And we don't know the immediate future other than the fact that God has promised to keep us in our salvation. And so we tend to cry, God, you're withholding from me. Stop doing this. And we miss that even when it seems like God's withholding from us, it's a blessing. Boy, did Jesus stand up to this temptation for us. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 8, we're told, Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. He said to him, I will give you all these things if you will bow down and worship me. You understand what the devil's offering Jesus here? God, the Father, God, the Holy Spirit, and you in all eternity, you planned that the way you would save mankind is going to be on that cross where you're going to be abandoned and suffer an eternity of hell in three hours' time. You're going to be tortured. You're going to suffer the hatred of the people you actually are trying to save. God is withholding from you. You don't have to do that. I'll give you all these souls. They're slaves to me anyways. Just worship me. Jesus stands up. Go away, Satan! For it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. When we complain that God is withholding something from us, guess what? The minute we start telling God how to be God, we think we have knowledge that's above God, that God's making a mistake. We're worshiping our own sinful selves and making ourselves God. But Jesus would not let it happen. No, worship and serve the Lord your God only. What was the result of Adam and Eve falling into sin? When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was appealing to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took some of its fruit and ate it. Her relationship with God is already destroyed. She gave some also to her husband who was with her and he ate it. His relationship with God has been destroyed. As he watches the crown of creation, the woman God gave him to be his corresponding helper, struggle for her life and just goes, Duck and snake, man. And doesn't say, hun, let's walk away. Let's go talk to God. Their relationship with God is destroyed. They're spiritually dead. But it doesn't end there. The eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together to make coverings for their waist. Yes, brothers and sisters in Christ, they were originally designed to be one flesh and come together. And their private parts were glorious. This is how we fit together. But now Adam looked at Eve and said, hubba, hubba. And Eve said, ooh. And they covered each other up because their relationship with each other is destroyed. But God promised them that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. And that's the Lent season for us. We see him standing up to temptation. We see him on the cross, but we never forget we see him off the cross. Their relationship with God was shattered and their relationship with each other. The devil wants to destroy God's creation, but Jesus was tempted in every way for you and I, and he never failed, not just in the desert, but for the 33 years of his life so that he could save you. And our epistle lesson summarizes that starting at verse 17. Indeed, if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through the one man, it's even more certain that those who receive the overflowing grace of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So then, just as one trespass led to a verdict of condemnation for all people, so also one righteous verdict led to life-giving justification for all people. For just as through the disobedience of one man the many became sinners, so also through the obedience of one man the many will become righteous. Romans chapter 5. Amen.
And now, brothers and sisters in Christ, no temptation has overtaken you that's not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Amen.